He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Trainee doctor and award-winning writer Emma Espina, no Ngāti Tukorehe me Ngāti Pirau, provides an insight into the country's healthcare system. From rural Northland to the bustling super city of Auckland, Getting Better, a year in the life of a Māori medical student, the podcast, explores healthcare in Aotearoa. This week we're up to episode six. Emma heads back home. Where are we going? So I'm not actually sure. Um, so we're driving <laughs> to stuff. Uncle Tippy's place in Cuckoo, Cuckoo Beach, and we're going to get my tamuko. So I initially thought that I'd wait until graduation to get my tāmoko. Medical students are dealt with harshly if we fail anything, so repeating a year is a very real prospect. The superstitious part of me wanted to wait right until the end before I put ink on my skin. That changed when Koro died and Papa Sean Ogden not long after. Sean was sent to live with Nanny and Koro when he was a naughty kid and he ended up being a teacher, a te reo Māori advocate and one of our best kaikōrero on the marae. I fully intended to go home and learn everything from him, and then suddenly he wasn't there anymore. Going back to Cuckoo for those tangi brought my desire for the tāmoko forward. It stopped being so much about signifying the end of medical school and more about representing why I was there. And it's not always been obvious, I think, to Māori when I meet them in a hospital or primary care setting that I'm also Māori, and I think people are surprised when I say that because you, most people would look at me and know, but I think... It just reflects that power differential and the fact that there aren't still aren't that many of us to see. And so I just want them to know, yeah, to be visible and to be safe, or for them to know that. From Bird of Paradise Productions for RNZ, called Emma Espinaraho, and this is Getting Better, a year in the life of a Māori medical student. This is episode six, Te Ahika. So we're actually just driving past where um, my grandparents are buried. So just off to the left here is our Urupa. So we're driving along State Highway 1, which is the path that we have to walk when we when we carry the Tupapaku um, to the Urupa after Tangi. A lot of and traffic. A lot of traffic, yeah. Yeah. Try very hard not to um, bring this podcast <laughs> to an untimely end. <laughs> <laughs> my ancestral home is at Kuku in Horofenua, on State Highway 1, like, right on it. Passing lanes right outside, cars and trucks thundering past at 100 k's per hour. It's a nightmare. I mean, I get it. State Highway 1 gets us from A to B, just the way it's meant to. But you'd never have a road like this outside a childcare centre or a retirement village or a mainstream community venue. The road we contend with every time we bury our dead is a reminder that we're part of a system that prioritises one culture's needs over another and does it in a way that is so bold you can forget that any other needs even exist. From where I'm standing, that tends to look like Pākehā needs, Pākehā priorities. But that kind of structure, that just thinks about getting from A to B quickly and efficiently, that doesn't always work as well as it should. You see it all the time in the health system. 
I'm just offended that my profession is built on clarity of thought and testing things and evidence, and yet the health system's got none of those things in it, that it's a set of blind knee-jerk reactions on top of knee-jerk reaction, that it's politically determined and then fought over, and so there's no thinking in it at all, and it's completely non-joined up, and people fall through the cracks all the time. Glenn Cahoon is a doctor and a poet. He grew up in South Auckland, spent a bit of time in Northland, and now lives and works in Levin, just down the road from Amarai. He's never been one to shy away from highlighting the system's shortcomings. It's like, oh, for God's sake, we're a country. You make a proper health system. You think it through. Give it to any of our grandmothers and they'd do it. It's not complicated. Just do it and stop fighting about it. Put it in place and stop going around and around in circles. We'll hear more from Glenn later. I love that he said our grannies could build a proper system. My nanny could have lived just up the road from where he works now. She had her own approach to systems that don't work. Samurai, our dining room. <sighs> so that bit's the story about our nanny. She was one of the driving forces to get that archway put in because what happened was that used to be the original entranceway. So when people used to come up, the first thing they'd see is our toilet block directly behind it and she didn't like it. This is my cousin Courtney. She's a few years older than me. She's the favourite moko. So she pushed and pushed and pushed um, to have what we call the ruru whakaruruho put up and got it up with no money. How'd she do it? Just annoying people, fundraising, being bossy. But it was, it, it's worked great too, though, because it's also become a, um, like an extension of our dining room. We can't fit everybody in. There's like another space they can kind of just kind of chill. So yeah, that's our, that's our meeting house, Ngāti Tū Kōrehe. It's like our home, you know, when we sleep in there, um, we bring our dead into there. It's just who we are. So the marae is our principal home for all the descendants of Ngāti Tū Kōrehe. So everyone's welcome home here. Nanny Kura's reno was the last major upgrade to our marae since the 80s. Uncle Tippy lives just a few hundred metres from the marae. We have an appointment at 10.30. Yeah, um, Come in, Noel. Tippy is a well-known Tāmoko artist. He's also the wihipeihana that people are most likely to have heard of from his early career in performing arts and television. His studio is at the back of the whare. There's music playing low and a comfy sofa and kete and taonga all over the walls. Everything's done freehand. That's how we've been taught. We, we don't use stencils because... Um, You've got to look at body shape, you've got to look at the, the contour of the area that you're working on. You've got to marry that with the story that Emma's sharing with me, and there's no template for that. They're all unique. The tikanga is different from tattoos. I didn't come in with a design, for instance, so I had no idea what I was going to come away with that day, but I wasn't fussed. I knew Tippi would understand the whakawhanaungatanga side of it and the whakapapa stuff too. I'm a wihipeihana on my dad's side, same as Tippi and Quartz. My Pākehā side is my mum's. She's one of 12 kids from Tākaka. Her mum was Ethel Smith, a strong woman in an entirely different mould from my dad's mum, Kura. I was just thinking last night about mum and dad's wedding. Yep. And it was the first time the Pākehā and the Māori whānau met. Mm-hmm. And obviously I wasn't there, but, you know, these two like, intensely Catholic whānau mm. and Nanny insisted on bringing her own priest and then had her <laughs> priest. Yep, you heard that right. Two priests, one wedding. You can imagine it, eh? But then, you know, they came together and it was just an awesome thing. So 
something like that. Okay, cool. I'm inclined to sort of bring it on that angle across mm-hmm. the diagonal of your arm. If you're looking at you know both sides, your nanny's sides, and that connection will have something that represents your your Māori side there and the interweaving and the connection with your Pākehā side down, down there. Awesome. How's that? Okay. Do you want them represented or you just want a representation of? Or do you yeah. literally want Nani no, no. Koro? No, it's, it's Manawahine, really. Oh, yeah. yeah. Cool. Mm. Say no more. Mm. Here we go. We only needed to talk for a couple of minutes, if that. I could see Noel, the producer, was kind of buzzing out about how it was all so quick. But I suppose it's a different thing to get your head around if you're not Māori. Not too bad, eh? No, it's not. It's an odd feeling. It's so weird because I've done this to people with scalpels. (laughs) (laughs) So that's quite... They had anaesthetic, though. It was a privilege being able to go to whānau for my tāmoko, and it was a real honour that Courtney was there. It reminded me of how much history shared between us. Like, they knew exactly what I was talking about with that two-priest wedding story. Because mum's family are so white. (laughs) (laughs) We must have been catching up for about an hour, just yarning about whānau, remembering nanny and koro, and then Tippi mentioned this song by Moana and the Tribe. In the um, 80s, about 86, I think it was... They released that song, Kua Makuna, yes. and it was about um, reducing drinking within families. Mm-hmm. And it was a national campaign, so they took that, that waiata around the whole motu, and they came to Tukurehe. Beautiful waiata. I wonder if I on this playlist, actually. You probably know how to compare that. Yeah, it's, it's, quite, it's quite well known. Yeah, all this. Oh, hold on, depends. When did you come back to Bingamari again? <laughs> <laughs> Ouch, what a burn. I know what she means, though. For a long time, my connection to Tukorehe wasn't as strong as it might have been. I don't think I'm alone in that, but if there's one good thing about the time I spent away from here, it's having the chance to come back. And now I don't take it for granted, having all of this richness to step into. Oh, yeah. You know the song? Oh, is that what it's <laughs> <laughs> It's 87. Right. Beautiful song, For us, the choice that Courts and some of the other cousins are making to keep the home fires lit, that's the reason our iwi is thriving. We lost my kōro just as we were starting work on the series. Courtney had made the decision to move back here with her whānau from Palmerston North to be with him in the last years of his life. I love the last six years of my life. There was a choice between being rich and miserable or poor and happy. I chose to be poor and happy, but rich in love and whānau. But it also meant that that my baby's got to come back here and spend some time without you because I haven't been back here since my teens, really. So there's a big gap. So I've got a boy, he's 15. Um, When he was about three, so I I hadn't been coming back here, um, only to see Koro, but would never really come to the marae. But it was when he was about three, we were driving past... And he said to me, hey, mama, there's your marae. And I was like, no, that's your marae. And he's like, no, that's your marae. And I was like, that, that's, that's when the penny dropped. I hadn't been bringing my kids back. Yeah, so I had to start making a more concerted effort. Now, it might have been the corridor, but it felt like my tāmoko went on pretty quickly. This is the niho, mm-hmm. niho tanifa, or the niho mango. And that's what we have running through the kō whaiwhai and the whare. Mm. So even though it's become... It personifies your name. It's not mm. your name per se, mm. but it personifies your name. Awesome. And Te Māori, 
through your name, but also through your koro mm. and the niho niho tanifa. And then your other name, and te Pākehā. And the blending of those whakapapa mm. from whence you have derived and the tāniko in the middle, creating uh, those two worlds coming together. It's been a few months now since we recorded all of this. I've been on placement in the hospital and maybe I'm projecting here, but my interactions with Māori patients seem richer. We get to the where are you from girl a lot quicker. Interestingly, they've also been a lot more demanding of me. One komatua got quite cross with me and corrected my reo as I was handing him his discharge papers the other day. Now, hopefully, that's part of breaking down the barrier between medical professionals and patients. Until now, it's only been the Pākehā patients that I've seen feeling entitled to challenge and assert their authority with medical teams. My lineage is a mixture, a blend of two cultures. There seem to be two types of people in Aotearoa, those who are curious about our bicultural foundations and those who would rather ignore it. One of the things I really rate about Glenn Cahoon is the way he's taken his curiosity and turned it into action. I was thinking the other day, writing this, it's akin to that experience I had as Parker when I first went into the Māori world. Mm. And all of a sudden it's like, even though I grew up in South Auckland, it's, oh, it's like there's another world, that's right. So Ngārawahia isn't just a tenas town, or Ōtaki's not just a shitty little town. It's like, it has a massive landscape in Te Ao Māori, and so does Ngārawahia, and dates are different. And our versions of Waitangi Day are different. And, you know, the pōkai is a massive part, if you're Tainui, of, of your year. But if you're not, it means nothing. What the hell's that? Exist. Mm. You know? So there's this other landscape, this, this time landscape and physical geography. When he was a med student, Glenn took a year out from his training and went and lived for a year up at Titi in the Bay of Islands and wrote his first book of poems, The Art of Walking Upright. It's a kind of extended love letter to the hapu he was living with up there from the perspective of a Pākehā. Now he lives in Levin, his daughter has Māori whakapapa from around here, and he's also changed his job a bit. Well, he's added to it. Hi. <laughs> Hi, Noel. This old hospital building we're in is now called the Horofenua Learning Centre. This is an old maternity hospital. It's just reeks of old maternity yeah. hospital. It's full of ghosts of women screaming. Very cold. <laughs> Hands yeah. to the head. What a great place to breathe. If you listen carefully in the middle of the yeah. night, you can hear yeah. women saying, Never again! I'm never doing this again! Glenn and nurse Michelle Murray run a free health service out of here for 10 to 24-year-olds in the Rohe, providing everything from contraception to help with depression, anxiety, alcohol, drugs. It runs three days a week, and it's just the two of them. We had no budget, so we thought we'd do something to fight, to fight the corridorness of it. Actually, you're lucky you had you knew um, someone who was a really cool artist, so... Yeah, yeah. The pokey corridor was full of colourful drawings, but it's nothing compared to Glenn's office. What is this? <laughs> I have never seen anything like it. I'm not sure what the coolest thing was in that office. Maybe the shelf of superheroes? Darth Vader and Buzz Lightyear hanging out with the Virgin Mary? Or perhaps the full-size skeleton in the straw hat hanging against the tuppercloth backdrop? The skeleton is my Twitter pick now, just quietly. 
Glenn's office is full of toys and plastic body parts, action figures, books and art and colours. It's the sort of place you'd feel you could say shit, you know? There's space for it. Glenn's the kind of GP who's big on conversations. Because you're, you know, you're a proponent of giving out your mobile number, right? Yes, to most people. It solves more problems than it creates, in mm. my experience. And, and texting solves a lot of issues. Mm. It solves, you know, you can solve things. Like what? Like, oh, my baby, you know, it's got a temperature of 39 and woke up and I can't open their eyes because they're all glued together and could, said he can't see, would he go blind? And I said, no, probably not. He's probably got conjunctivitis. Try, you know, a, a warm flannel and give me a call in a couple of hours and let me know how it's going. And lots of our kids get chronic pain as manifestations of anxiety, as manifestations of trauma. And so they present to ED with things, you know, as 19-year-olds with an MI or with strokes. Mm. And it's like, well, maybe, you know, talk to me first before you go. And they wait up there for hours and they get CTs and they get all these things. And, of course, they don't have strokes and they don't have MIs. What they have is anxiety and um, they're somatizing. And so it's, you know, let's just talk it through by text and... You know, if I think you need to go and be seen, then you you can go and do that. So much of general practice is reassuring people. Of course, those conversations often take time, and most GPs are under serious time pressure. Glenn says, in some ways, his youth work is just a way to do longer GP hours. The youth worker day is split doing everything, and, you know, I, I was supposed to... Um, I was supposed to be up at half past five this morning taking a kid to go milking because <laughs> they love animals. It's part of your prescription. And they get lots therapy. of anxiety. <laughs> well, doing things you like doing mm. is the treatment. Mm. And Michelle's husband's a, fa- a farmer and he's great with young people, but they bailed out in the middle of the night because mm. um, they had a big fight with their boyfriend. Mm. So it spared me getting shat on by cows. If this service is giving him and Michelle some flexibility in how they can help the kids around here, it's also limited in other ways. Because we're sort of growing to capacity now. Mm. So they're looking at move, they're moving to the old hospital that's been gutted. So they're making a whole new educational institution down in Liverpool Street at the end. So will you move this there? Well, we get to keep this? There's heaps oh, yeah. more space. Mm. But there's no point us moving unless we expand the service because mm. it's going to cost us more to go there because we're only three-day-a-week service. Mm. So, and we're turning kids away all the time who have complicated stories and need to be seen, but, you know. You often see this in health, I reckon. People equating more capacity with more facilities, more hospitals, more beds. A new building, though, it's not the solution Glenn and Michelle are looking for. They need more time rather than a flash hospital. Time is a different kind of resource for money to be spent on, and perhaps it's a less obviously measurable outcome. Glenn's frustrated. When we came in, he was writing about how he'd do things differently, not just here in his patch, but all over New Zealand. I finally got pissed off enough with the health system to talk about being pissed off with the health system. Yeah, because you go in cycles, eh? Yeah. How pissed off are you and how much do you want to talk about that? There's a lot of energy being pissed off. Mm. And it's like, oh, Mm. I don't want to solve all those problems. I just Mm. want to be left alone to be a doctor at the end, you know, the day. What's precipitated that? Oh, just wear and tear and, you know, and, and seeing 
I'm just offended that my profession is built on clarity of thought and testing things and evidence, and yet the health system's got none of those things in it, that it's a blind, a set of blind knee-jerk reactions on top of knee-jerk reaction, that it's politically determined and then fought over, and so there's no thinking in it at all, and it's completely non-joined up, and people fall through the cracks all the time. The piece Glenn wrote is called Maui's Fish, a view of the New Zealand health system from the end of a corridor in a Levin hospital. The view from the end of the pink and yellow corridor in a Levin hospital is that our health system is broken. What does it need to fix it? Continuity of care, joined up thinking in systems, and patients getting more time. That would be a start. Up here is um, the HCP, is the biggest general practice, and they just run on a series of locums. Yeah. So people come in and tell their stories, mm. and then the six months later they have mm. to tell their story mm. again, their mm. big stories. So I'd, I'd spoken Hubbard like that. There'd always be so, a couple of people on acutes, and then so people could always get in and be seen on the day, and then you'd have three or four days where you see your regular patients, and you'd have anywhere from 10 minute to hour long consultations depending and you'd have you know a half day a week where you had a big case review where you put families or patients on a um, case management list and you'd build a profile of the vulnerable families in the community so you wouldn't just see patients every 15 minutes you'd say actually something in that family is struggling and that's spitting out a whole lot of really poor health behaviour, so let's get ahead of that. Whew, OK, so there's a lot in there. But it strikes me, that stuff about case management and relationship building with vulnerable Fano, we've heard a lot about the importance of that from many health professionals around the multi already. Listening to Glenn also reminds me that one of the things I most love about medicine is the practicality of the help that you can give. Not only prescriptions and diagnoses, but just answering a call or a text, giving someone enough time to tell their story. Listening. You could do that in the system Glenn's proposing. He's finding a way to do it in the system as it is right now, too. The other visceral pleasure I get is talking to a kid and them making me be honest because I can't bullshit them. I can't. I've got to stop running ahead of the consultation or being distracted and I've got to be... I've got to be lasered into them in an honest way. It's like they send out a signal, and if you've got to be quiet enough in yourself that the old part of you, the animal brain, can follow that in, yeah? And they change you when they do that. And then they find a medicine in you because they feel seen and heard, I like to think. It doesn't last forever because they go back to difficult situations and demons they run with, but they might come back and see you. And over time, those relationships become really deeply precious. We go and grab a coffee for the drive home. And I ask Glenn if he has any advice, doctor to nearly doctor. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful profession and... It will fill you up and expand you and it could be a really, you know, one of the greatest journeys of your life. But it will hurt. It'll be painful. Sometimes it's painful because there's just a shitload to learn. Sometimes it's painful because you make, you'll hurt people because you can't get good without hurting people. 
and, it, and it's a lie at the heart of medicine is of course we get better by making mistakes <laughs> you know of course we do yeah, and when you're a student, making mistakes just means not passing the exam, losing some marks. The stakes are about to get so much higher. In this profession, when you make mistakes, people get hurt. That's as true for the system as it is for individual doctors. When we fail to care for people properly, they're not magically cured somehow. They suffer. Equally, when we fail to address the causes of ill health, people suffer. So where do you put your energy? Do you push to change things, change the system, change the profession? Or do you save yourself for your patients, help people feel better, even if it doesn't last, like Glenn says? I don't know the answer yet. I suppose I have a whole career ahead of me in which to find out. But I can see from Glenn's experience, it's pretty hard to look after people properly in 15-minute increments. I've already seen that in our own whānau, with courts and kōro. As, as he got older, it became the realisation that there was nothing wrong with him really. It was just that he was getting old and... Um, so obviously as a whānau we had those discussions about what are we going to do with them and so I just decided I'm not really one for putting our elderly into rest homes unless it's really, really, really necessary and so there were some great debates with my mum and her siblings or her living siblings at the time and um, I won because my argument was the minute we put him into there he's going to decline so rapidly and they said to us probably two years at the time he got discharged, but well, we had him for six, so we're pretty lucky. And I still reckon it was because he was at home. You know, being included, you know, things happen at the mud I take him down. I loved it. I know that looking after our elders at home is not possible for every whānau. I feel so lucky we had Courtney. She's given our whānau the most important thing, time. I had a good career before I went into medicine, in recruitment of all things. Earned good money, had a great social life, but at the end of the day it was just a job. Looking back now, it was the calculated decision to change my profession that's bringing me back to the fundamentals. Whānau, of course, but also clarifying my values to align with the sorts of things Quartz has been living all this time. Manakitanga and humility, even when it's coupled with the sharp wehipehana tongue. I'm grateful to our whānau who have been patient with me, knowing I'd get there eventually. Getting Better, a year in the life of a Māori medical student with trainee doctor Emma Espiner, produced by Bird of Paradise Productions. Now you can find the entire Getting Better series, these seven episodes, head to the podcast page at rnz.co.nz or you can download it from Apple, Spotify, Google or wherever you get your podcasts. Nō reira kua taiki te mutunga uh, o tēnei kaupapa. To get in touch with the show, you can email tiahika at rnz.co.nz or follow RNZ Te Ao Māori on social media. Ko te manako ia kia haumaru tā koutou noho, tēnā tātou katoa. I hope someday you're gonna find a way through the stormy weather I know things can only get better You know I've tried to keep us together Seems like I was Hardest thing 
Still in 